Sego, Sewagwego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory. Our podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services with the technical assistance of Humble Man Recording. My name is Lisa Venevery from the Mohawk Nation and the Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name program and the host of this podcast. Welcome to the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word Donate, located at the top of the homepage of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada. This is the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. There are a multitude of statistics we can reference that tell the story of domestic violence in Indigenous women. They feature the significant difference in levels of violence experienced by Indigenous women and share a common theme of colonization and forced assimilation. Domestic violence, just one more added ingredient in the generational trauma legacy left by residential schools and experienced by Indigenous people. We can read about domestic violence in journal articles. We can view it on our screens by way of movies and crime documentaries. And for some of us, we can hear the remnants of it in the deep recesses of our memories. On this episode, Yohate Negosuna welcomes to the podcast author, dreamer, and achiever from Mohawk and Anishinaabe ancestry, Cher Obadiah. Cher is the author of the book, Shame to Shine, The Wreckage and Rise from Domestic Violence. Sego Cher, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. What a beautiful introduction. <laughs> oh, um, Yahweh, I try. I try my best. Um, it's so wonderful to see you again. Um I haven't seen you regularly for years when we shared workspaces at the Mohawk Institute. Remember that long time ago? I do remember that. Yeah, we were right down the hall from one another working. Yeah, I really enjoyed working there. Yeah, I did too. You know, um, a lot of people have heard stories about the spirits there. And I did feel spirits there when I worked there, but it was okay. Like, I felt okay while I was working there. I did, too, unless it was late at night, and then I didn't feel okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like a scary place to be, but yeah, yeah, I get, I know what you mean about the spirits, or we had survivors come in, and we would just stop working yeah. and allow them to be in the space. Yeah, yeah, that was really nice to see um, survivors able to get to that point to enter the building, because I know some... Um, could not. Some of them didn't make it down the laneway, and that's true. Yeah. yeah. And some did come in and share stories. Yeah. Some I had the privilege of interviewing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, I wish I still worked there. Actually, it was a, I worked there um, different times over the course of my life, and uh, it just—I think it helped me being in that building. It helped me to really try to get to that part of understanding what my ancestors went through. Yeah, by being immersed in that environment, because I was thinking about it a lot. Mm, it's yeah. true. There's something to be said about being in the space and being in that energy that I, I know there was a lot of discussion around um, save the evidence and that people said you just can't get that same feel from a plaque. Yeah. And so going in and having that, I know what you mean about walking through those halls and then the um, you can really imagine and you could, there's something very tangible and having, you can have a visceral effect to yeah. that. And I remember so clearly every time I went up those stairs, I would think of my aunt because she would tell the story of her scrubbing those stairs with a toothbrush. A toothbrush? Yeah. And, uh. and I thought of her every single time I went up those stairs. Mm, I don't know why that surprises me, but yeah. yeah. Aw, that's sad. And, and staring out that window. They like to stare out the window, see what was going on outside. Yeah, so, um, well, you've written this book, and I must say, I really, this book really, um, I, I read it cover to cover, like I couldn't put it down. You know how you say, oh, I can't put that book down. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really great in that, what, what jumped out at me um, after I read it, what I was thinking, what what is it about this book that I really, really liked? And it was your imagery in your wording it was the it was the way you used words that created images for me yeah i've had a lot of people say that and i think that just comes from my background in doing a lot of video visual work and so as a as a storyteller in in the sense of being a visual storyteller that really uh, transferred quite nicely into my writing so if i could see it then i know that i could feel it and then I know that I had success in the piece if I was able to feel it that way, that I knew other people could feel it. Mm -hmm. And so I've had a lot of people say it's very visual. And I also, you know, the, when it comes to the wording, because I've not written uh, poetry before, um, I worked very hard at uh, the structure and doing it justice and working with a lot of people to make sure that it was very eloquent storytelling, that it's not so flowery, that it goes over people's heads. It's not that kind of poetry. It was really important to me that it that it was widespread for a lot of people. That's how I, I designed it. Yeah, because I have read poetry that I thought, what were they trying to say there? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, you know, maybe I missed something, but what, what, with your poetry, it is very visual storytelling. I guess those mm -hmm. two words are how I would describe it. Can you talk about how you set up like the um, format of the book? Yeah, so I did uh, one chapter on uh, in the cycle of domestic violence. So there's 20 poems that are that were written at a time when I was in the cycle, and then the second chapter is called Healing and Transformation. So there's 20 poems in there when I started to really focus on self, when I started to understand trauma, when I started to understand the mind-body condition, and so when I started to understand neurology and those kinds of things. So that's that's the second chapter, but also the insidiousness of going back and forth and being stuck in that trauma bond is very apparent in that second chapter as well. Because it's not just a ripping of a band-aid and it's, well, this happened and I'm leaving. It doesn't work like that. And so 
The third chapter is Enlightenment and Empowerment. So there's 20 poems in there. Um, so there's 20 poems in each chapter, three chapters. And I also wanted it to be very visually colorful, not colorful in terms of a color palette, but just uh, like a really a joyful ride throughout the book. So some of the poems are justified left, some are in the center, some are list poems, some are word art or what my editor called concrete poetry. And then I also want to make sure that I had um, illustrations also sort of peppered throughout. So it's just a really, it's just a, a beautiful display of, it's not just all justified left. And that was really important to me that it be very colorful journey that way. Oh yeah, for sure. There's and you did all the illustrations. I did. Oh my gosh, me. they're they're really great. Thank you. And it's it's always good to have a image to look at. You know, you know? and that's it's just a it's just a lot of pages of creativity. <laughs> <laughs> Thank that's you. What, that's what it is. Um, so domestic violence. Now, um, everybody's journey is different, I guess, isn't it? It's different in, in terms of their experience, but at mm -hmm. the same time, it's the same yeah. in terms of their experience as well. But you can feel very alone as in that you're the only one going through this. But human behavior is the same here as it is in the States, as it is in the U.S., as it is in Russia or the other side of the world. Human behavior is human behavior. You can't escape that. Yeah. So the way in which people are responding to their trauma is very similar, no matter what your background is or where you're from. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, yes. But... It really is dependent upon um, the wounded partner's um, trauma and how they respond to that that creates the experience within the household. So for me, it wasn't anything physical, but it was a massive amounts of psychological abuse and manipulation and gaslighting. And I just felt crazy all the time and I was tippy-toeing around. And so, and that really alters your neurology and it, it does, they uh, sort of infiltrate your self-talk as well. So can you take us back to how long ago was this and how long did it last in your life and and what was it like? Well, it was a nightmare and, mm -hmm. and it was amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the cycle mm -hmm. <laughs> because as you never stay if it's a complete nightmare because there's always these highs and lows and then there's the whole apology and then there's the understanding and the hug it out and the crying and it's like now we've gotten through that. We don't need to to worry about that anymore we've ironed that wrinkle and then something else would happen and then I would feel like okay well let's talk about that and you know, we would hug that out there would be uh, he could articulate where it came from very well so I was impressed by that and so we would iron that wrinkle and move on so I felt like eventually we would have all of these um, wrinkles ironed and everything would be smooth mm -hmm. but trauma doesn't work like that <laughs> so every time we, there would be an outburst it would come from some sort of different trigger. You can have like a thousand different, like a different whole bunch of pins in a pin cushion. It's not just one pin as I was looking at it as like one wrinkle. It doesn't work like that. It could be anything. Yeah. It's actually the root of where it comes from that is the issue that can be triggered by so many different things throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it just doesn't go away by talking about that one incident. You really have to go to the root and that's not on, that's not your problem. Yeah. That's not for you to deal with. Yeah. And so, and it's not for me to carry anyone else's emotions either, but I didn't know that at the time. So if you're very, um, compassionate, if you're very understanding, if you're, you know, maybe a bit of a people pleaser, just understand that you are a target for a narcissist. They must mm -hmm. have that. And if you're someone who's solid within yourself or someone who's really knows how to create a boundary and withhold 
and hold that boundary, um, they're not good with that. Mm-hmm. And they'll just call you difficult or, and then they'll just move on. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's really key in understanding uh, a narcissist and getting caught up in the whole thing. Um, how did, how was it, what was it like for you during that time? Like, what was your day-to-day life like living through this? Yeah, day-to-day life is really difficult when you're in this kind of situation. For me, I knew and understood that his background was very tumultuous. And so I wanted to have a lot of patience. I wanted to be that partner that could stand by his side throughout anything. So I knew that it was going to be extra work. But um, there there was too much work for me. And there, I got emotionally overwhelmed all the time. And then I just started to think about, well, if I just did this differently, then I, then he won't freak out about this or he won't, or I could do this differently. So then our brains are just designed to go straight into survival. Yeah. So if there's a lot, um, if, if you're getting emotionally overwhelmed on an ongoing basis, then it's not, then your body is constantly in stress mode and that's just going to wear you down. And even when things were going well, I now know and understand that my body was still in a cautious zone. I was waiting for it. So I felt like I was never in homeostasis, that I was never in rest and repair, even when things were calm, but I didn't know that at the time. So if you live like that long enough, you're headed straight for disease. Yeah. You were just feeling like you were walking on eggshells all the time. And that's so common. It's so common. Yeah, the eggshells. And then, you know, it comes from them being in an environment of eggshells in their own life. And then they just move those eggshells into your house. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have swept those right out the door and out of my life now. There's no more eggshells. I'm completely confident and comfortable today in my environment. So what was it like, what happened or maybe something happened in your head that made you realize, um, this is not for me. Um, this is not, I can't fix this and I need to, um, help myself. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of me helping myself. It was a matter of counselors really helping me. Mm-hmm. helping me to help myself. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of counseling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a lot of um, pushback with them because they were making me do so much you know, personal work that I was uncomfortable with. And um, I felt like they weren't understanding me on, on certain days. And it's just a matter too of just being high strung for so long and just being able to get it out. So yeah. I was just kind of, but yeah, I really enjoyed the counseling. They really helped me on, to get onto the right path, to understand myself, to understand uh, that I don't need to be aiding and abetting when it comes to their behaviors, which is what I was doing. I thought I was being an understanding partner. They were calling it aiding and abetting. <laughs> and it's so true. Enabling. Is that the same thing? Yeah. Enabling. Yeah. Instead of, you know, holding them accountable. Mm-hmm. I'm a, they said that um, you can let them know when they want you to, um, when, when you're being guilted, that um, you can just tell them, I want to be the friend to walk by your side as you work through this insecurity or this problem, but it is not my problem. It yeah. is your problem. And so I want to be the friend to walk by your side as you work through it, but it is not, I don't need to change anything about myself. Yeah. in order for you to get through your insecurities. But if you're willing to to do the work, I'll be the friend that you need to walk beside you during that. But otherwise, I'm not going to 
to change anything about myself. Mm-hmm. But I, but for me, I was. I yeah. didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's one of the you know pieces of wisdom gained throughout counseling that I was like just aiding and abetting and yeah enabling. But, you know, because he was using my values and I valued understanding, I valued um, being compassionate. And so I also valued uh, compromise in relationships. And so he would use those in a manipulative way. And it's like, yeah, well, I guess I could do this or I guess Mm -hmm. I could do that. Mm -hmm. I guess I could meet you in the middle here. But those were all very sneaky, slippery ways to just get what they wanted in order to continue to keep their fears. Yeah. So when you talk about counseling and you decided to um, go to counseling, do you think that um, a a person in in the domestic violence um, cycle should seek out a counselor who is um, trained in domestic violence? Are there counselors like that? Oh, yeah. A lot of them are there because of their own experience. And I think that finding a counselor is, uh, somebody said to me one time, it's like trying on a whole bunch of shoes and you just got to get the right <laughs> pair that fit. And so you have to find that right counselor. And that's yeah. very true. Yeah. I had some that were more harmful than helpful. And so mm-hmm. you really have to find that. That And you don't, it's tough to start all over again, to get vulnerable, yeah. to start spilling all this stuff. Yeah. But to find the right one is to change your life. Yeah. Yeah. So, so your advice would be, don't stop, find that right counselor for yourself. It's true. Yeah. People can go and have a bad experience or, you know, or, or go into it with preconceived ideas about what they want out of it versus what you need out of it. So, um, I don't know, people feel like they don't want to go because they don't need to be fixed or anything like that. Um, but I'm a huge fan of it. I think there should be a counselor going door to door in, in every household and <laughs> every family. We all arrive to where we are with our own traumas, with our own yeah. problems. I, I always like to say that I don't care if you grew up on the corner of Rainbow Boulevard and Sunshine Street, you arrived here where you are today with your own traumas. You just don't know what they are. We just move through the world unconsciously. And so to be, to be empowered is to be the watcher of your own thoughts, yeah. you know, to really um, get curious about yourself and to really uh, have a huge desire to want to understand more about yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing I would say is that if you're meeting somebody or you're getting into a relationship, one of the, the key Uh, questions that I would ask right off the top, and I want everybody to know this, is I would ask that person, what is, what are your self-soothing techniques when you become emotionally overwhelmed? And what are those techniques that you've learned along the way? What do you do for yourself when you get emotionally overwhelmed? And I just think that's critical. And we don't ask people that. Mm -hmm. And then our then we get emotionally overwhelmed and so do they. And then that just clashes without us understanding each other. And if he had learned to emotionally uh, self-soothe, and if I had asked that question in the beginning, I wouldn't have been involved in any of that. I was trying to do it. I was people-pleasing. I was just trying to stay safe. So that's a really key question. How do you self-soothe? Yeah. Really important. What about um, when you were... When you were figuring all of this out, did you go to the bookstore and go to the self-help aisle? Did any of those resources help? Uh, Oh, reading books? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I started to spill right into the spirituality section (laughs) and the self-help section. I think the very first one I bought was um, 
Why does he do that? Mm-hmm. That one's very popular. People tend to pick that one up first. And since then, I've become a bookaholic. Oh, so yeah. for sure, that, that definitely was a resource. If you are researching online uh, your relationship, if you're researching someone's behaviors online, you're dealing with a narcissist. And I was doing that. If you're recording them, I re- would record conversations because I would feel crazy that afterwards it's like well I didn't say this or I didn't say that or also if he was freaking out and I was recording a conversation it would cause him to stop so that mm-hmm. was like a safety mechanism that worked quite well for me mm-hmm. so yeah there's all these little tools and things that you learn along the way but for sure books was very very helpful well um let's talk about your book um again mm-hmm. how did you how did the poetry like i'm sure you didn't say i'm going to write a book about this when you're when you're in it right but how did that um come about evolve yeah i definitely did not say i'm going to write a book about this it's the kind of thing that you don't tell anybody about not even your own family members it's yeah. just your counselors are the only ones that you tend to spill to so i certainly did not plan to take my deepest secrets and the most shameful things that have happened um and then put them in a book for everyone to read but there's so much power in sharing our stories and i realize that today and so what happened is um Whenever there would be an outburst in the house, I would run out the door uh, quite often without my shoes. I would just be carrying my shoes in one arm and the leash in the other. <laughs> I would take my dog and I would go to uh, Wilkes Dam here in yeah. Brantford. And so I would just write on my phone and I found nature to be very restorative. So I would just walk through nature and I would just write and just get out what I wanted to say on my phone. And then when I got to the end of the trail, back to the parking lot, I would email it to myself. Mm-hmm. And I never really read them again or visited them again. I just did that, and it was always so restorative. Um, so that was just a, a natural thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started to do that. And then when we did end up splitting, I noticed that my writing had shifted from him to uh, focused on myself and focusing on the traumas and understanding how I went down that rabbit hole. So I started to write about those kinds of things. And then again, I would just email it to myself. And and then when I opened my email, I put it in a file folder, but I, I never looked at it. And then as time went on, I started to get my old self back in a really empowered way. My writing had shifted again. I was hitting these milestones. I was setting goals and I was hitting them. And so my uh, writing had shifted again. And so I one day opened up that file folder and there was just scads of poetry in there, just scads of them. And I just sat there and I started to read them. And the beginning stuff was so, so sad. really sad stuff. And then I scrolled further and I was like, oh, this is where I started to get it about healing and transformation and the human condition and trauma. And then I scrolled further and I was like, ooh, this is where I got the grant for my documentary. And I was just like getting excited about um, the writing, how it had shifted and changed. And by the end, I was in tears and I felt like I just witnessed my own becoming. And so I felt wildly inspired to share it and wildly afraid at the same time. And I didn't know what I was doing, so I just reached out to some local people in Hamilton and just sort of gave them my really early... I had to go through and pick. The idea that came to me was to pick 20 for each chapter. So I grabbed 60 and I sent them to someone in Hamilton and we sat down and went through them. And then I sat down with um, 
January, Marie Rogers. And, you know, we went through it again and I felt like I had it in a position where now I could apply for a grant and then get an editor and really clean it up again. So it was just rounds and rounds and rounds of just rewriting it. And the most difficult part was going back to the emotional state that I was in when I wrote it. That was so, so important to me that I maintained that because these are historical pieces. They're they're not today. It's like back then. And so how did she feel back then? And I say she because I don't really recognize who I was at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I've just changed so much. But at the same time, really happy. I call it my beautiful disaster Mm -hmm. because I've gone through that process. So I just felt that if I felt that hopeless, that I felt that stuck, that other people out there are going through the same thing, and that if I was able to rewire and refire, wire and re, wire and fire, that's what yeah. it is in neurology, and, and change it and alter it to get to this place of empowerment that I could help others as well. So I really wanted to put this book together to be able to help other people know that in that place of hopelessness, there also exists that place of empowerment and that it feels hopeless at the time, but that's a fallacy that we all have that empowerment inside of us. We just need to sort of shine it up. It's always there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's hope for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's um, listen to you read um, a couple of your poems. I'll just let you pick out which one you think you want to share today. Yeah, I meant to put um, my bookmarker in. So I really like The Abuse Wears a Suit. And the other one is Unstuck. Oh, that yeah. That I thought um, that we could, uh, they would spark a little bit of a conversation. Mm-hmm. So uh, Abuse Wears a Suit, is it? because that's something that people don't understand. Um, they have a certain picture of someone who's an abuser. And so did I. Yeah. <clears throat> Did you have, you say you picked 20 per chapter. Did you have a lot more than that you had written? I had so many hurt poems that I didn't know which 20 to pick. I had the most overwhelming of the three chapters in terms of poetry to pull from. Um, I had hurt, hurt poetry. Yeah. Wow. So 76. Okay. I'll read along in my book. (laughs) So it's on page 76. Okay. Here, while you're getting ready, I'll look for unstuck. And is there a way to read poetry? Or can every, when people are reading this book, can they just read it how they want to read it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can just absolutely in. Like if you're, re- if you're looking at artwork, you're interpreta- interpreting that artwork through your own experiences, yeah. through your own life lens, and then someone else beside you could stand beside it and look at something different about that artwork. And so people are reaching out to me and, and different poems are standing out for different people. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it really is dependent upon who is reading it and where you're at in your own journey. Or if you're reading it because you're curious about a family member that c- continues to go back. This really is a, a look at domestic violence from the inside yeah. so I mean this is an inside perspective so, and that's I really want people to understand that because there's just so many misconceptions about why don't you just leave I wouldn't put up with that but I yeah. said that I said that I would never put up with that kind of behavior and then I did yeah. so it really is not something that's logical the logical thing would be to just leave 
but it's psychological. And so I really, the way that I thought started to get altered and that neurology started to alter and those pathways became more well-worn for safety reasons, because our brain is designed to, to keep us safe. So I was going down this path of just trying to stay safe and it just got worse and worse and worse. And so I had a a lot to untangle when it came to getting out of it. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to listen to you read one of your poems from your book. Yeah, so this one's called Abuse Wears a Suit. Socialized in social lies, I thought abuse had a look, a dress code, rebellious, sleeveless, moral conduct eroded or uninstalled. I watched abuse slip on a suit, shine his shoes, and be what he wanted people to see. A master of mattering, chameleon of chaos, rich in drive, emotionally bankrupt. His pain and protection too busy in bed to fold down the sheets for authenticity. Handsomeness is not the absence of abusiveness. The body can only do what the brain tells it to. Fear-informed fingers will always find a way to scratch you in the grip of emotional overspill. A sharp-dressed vampire still needs to feed. All drain equals pain. I apologize to the rebels of the world who are less of a liability than the guy who slipped out of a suit and into bed with me. Mm, that is so powerful. You can just you can just see the imagery as you're reading that, you know, because your words are so descriptive. Thank you. Yeah, there's that one brings up like a few points because people do think that it's, um, you know, it's just like in the hood or just happens in this area of town. But I want people to know that abuse wears a suit, that yeah. it comes in all forms, that it could be your neighbor and you just don't know about it. So, yeah, that one was really important for me to to write because I myself had a bit of a transformation there. I I was socialized and socialized. I thought abuse had a look, a dress code, but that's that's not the truth. Yeah, yeah, they do shine their shoes and slip on a suit. So I want people to understand that, mm-hmm. and that they can be very um, charismatic and outgoing and very and business leaders and CEOs and all kinds of things and they're just go home and then they're a disaster just yeah. a train, just a train wreck but you don't know that yeah unless you have all of the the um the little red flags you can see the nuances if you're privy to that which is not something that we're taught mm-hmm. yeah yeah um taught to recognize these things <clears throat> right away yeah um, so which other one are you going to share? Um, I think I'm going to read Unstuck. So this comes from the uh, the third chapter, okay. so Empowerment and Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, which is something that I ended up doing eventually was getting unstuck. And I think a lot of people uh, suffer that stuckness. Yeah. I was worried I'd be confused by honesty because it lied to me or that my soft side would be permanently scuffed. I wanted my problems to be the light in enlightenment, take the mean out of meaning. I used to be bitter, mind murmuring, anger swelling, life shrinking. He and I were both born into the cold air of colonization. To dwell on the hand I've been dealt is to keep colonizing myself. I didn't need him to be sorry, listen to my side of the story, or even acknowledge I was alive. My closure was starting over. I forgave him without saying it to him. We're all complicated creatures, fumbling over our fears, walking home when we're ready. I can't deliver anyone to the doorstep of their spirit, but I'll keep wishing for that gift every time I blow out a candle. 
My problems aren't gone because I've learned to cultivate calm. I'm just better prepared in a world that doesn't care. I never knew the heaviness of life could be carried so lightly. I need to be more aware of my unawareness in the future. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that um, people really get stuck on is that apology. So yeah. I didn't need him to be sorry or even listen to my side of the story or even acknowledge that I was alive. Like my yeah. closure was starting over. And you'll hear that. We get socialized in that. So in the news, you'll hear, well, they didn't get this kind of sentence. They didn't get that level of sentence. So the, the healing of the victim is dependent upon the sentence of the perpetrator. Yeah. And that's such a vulnerable way to live. So if I were to place my healing in someone's hands who has just moved on or doesn't even care that I'm alive, uh, how, what a vulnerable way to live. I, I, I'll never heal that way. So you have to sort of take control of your own healing and take control of your own life and really take ownership and responsibility for your for your own empowerment. That's mm-hmm. not to say that um, they were um, that you have to take responsibility for their behaviors um, because that wasn't fair what happened to you. That's not fair. But what I'm saying is taking responsibility for how did you get there? Where's that curiosity? How did I lend to these situations? So you don't want to, people don't want to admit, well, I didn't lend to anything. I was a victim in this, but there are certain things that you accepted. And why did you accept that? And that's for me, really what I had to investigate. Why did I accept that? So there was a lot of manipulation. Well, how did I get manipulated? (laughs) So I kept lifting those layers with why, 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 so that I wouldn't do it again. I was determined never to go down that road again. It was so tumultuous. So you really had to peel the layers back and analyze your own behavior in the situation. Yes. How was I responding? And is this mine or is it my mother's? Where does that come from? So getting curious about your own behaviors is so, so important. And learning to respond, you know, versus reacting. We're all human habits and we're going to continue our human habits until we get very curious about them. And so I got very curious about everything. I just became the watcher of myself all the live long day. So, and even changing behavior, that's a lot of work. So much work. Yeah. And it's uncomfortable. And the brain doesn't like uncomfortable. The brain likes what it knows, what the usual is, even if the usual is unsafe. So if you have like a ship, like at the dock, it's safe there. It knows the dock. But if the ship is going out into the unknown waters, even if that's where your goals and dreams are, it's going to tell you, you better get back to the dock. It's unsafe out here. This is a little bit scary. Yeah. So the brain just goes back to the known, even if the known is abusive. Mm -hmm. There's so many studies done on that. Kids that grow up in um, alcoholic families, and then there's a lot of chaos, and then the body gets addicted to those chemicals that are created from those thoughts that run through the body. And then the kid gets put into an environment where it's like very pristine and very clean, which logically makes sense. But then the kid craves to go back to the environment that they know and people don't get that. And uh, they label themselves sabotagers. Yeah. You know? yeah. It, it's oh, you're tr- It's true. Yeah. It's like, no, you don't understand psychology. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got to understand your own brain. I like to say that, you know, we are the crane operators of our own brain and it is the most important piece of equipment that you will ever learn to operate. And no one taught me to be a good crane operator. <laughs> so I'm learning how to do that now. <laughs> um. Yeah, did you want to share one more? Sure. Well, you pick one. You pick one you like. Oh, my gosh. Um, I (laughs) have a list of the ones. Like, I made a note that when I was reading them. We haven't read any from Chapter 2 yet. So, I like 
um, branches or the gains of pain. Branches is on page 52. Okay, so page 52. I like that one. Oh, branches comes with a illustration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. There's, I seen a lot of images when I was writing and I used to, uh, paint Christmas windows and I used to paint like season's greetings and characters on grocery stores and Tim Hortons. And so I've always been very artsy. Yeah. And so when I picked up my pencil and I started to draw when images came to me for this work, it was just my spirit was singing. It was thanking me for picking up a pencil again. <laughs> so uh, a lot of images were coming to me. And so branches, this one is when I was going to counseling, but that doesn't mean that everything's a-okay when you go to counseling. I went to counseling and all this stuff come up and it's just like, you know what? I don't even want to go there today. Yeah. I don't want to talk to anyone. I'm just in a mood. And I was so, so upset that I just wanted to scream from the top of my lungs. And so I just went out into the forest and I had a little, like, picked up branches and I was smashing them off trees and I was screaming. And then by the time I got through that, I was like, oh, that felt really good. <laughs> it's, it's better than going out and drinking or going to the casino or whatever people do. Yeah. So I just, yeah, it was just a way to get it out in a very powerful way. And my dog was such a good sport. She was with me and she's like, oh, she's freaking out. <laughs> I just like pick up branches off the ground and I was just like whacking them off trees like a baseball bat. And I was just like yelling it out. Yeah. But it was so therapeutic. Yeah. And so I ended up writing about that. So this one's called Branches. I don't want to sit empty-eyed in a counselor's office, surrounded by apricot walls, spilling secrets. I don't care about punching pillows or shadow work. I'm pissed off. I want to live in pure insanity, race to the woods with clenched teeth. I want to wrangle with broken branches, stomp them into bat length, and smash them against trees. I want to shatter them until they're as broken as I feel, then hurl the splattered char splintered shards into another dimension. I want to wail so loudly the sound surprises my mouth, ripples fiercely into the universe, and shakes dust from the stars. Oh, I just love that one. <laughs> I I felt better just after reading it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the scream over in the uh, illustration is like the skull. Yeah. Like the skull because it was that visceral. Like it was really going to the core of how I felt, but I even disengaged the jaw. Like the jaw's not even connected. So it's yeah. a louder scream than the human can even scream. That's for me what that represents. Oh, yeah, for sure. You can you, know, you can just see the scream coming out with <laughs> yeah. the shadowing there. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. glad it made you feel better. It made me feel better oh, yeah. after, <laughs> after I did it and after I wrote about it. I hope it helps others as well. It's a healthy way to move the energy. Yeah. So you also said that you had help, a lot of help with your book. Um, how did you engage the, the, um, the women's shelter here in town? Yeah. Um, with the book, you mean? Yeah. With your, with your, um, writings, did you get help from them? Yeah, I have. Um, yeah. There's reviews on the back cover, really mm -hmm. beautiful reviews on the back cover, but, um, my association with Nova Vita goes back to my own experience um, because I did go to um, a counselor's office in Brantford and they sent me there because they do free counseling. But I was really, I was a bit appalled by that. I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't need to go there, like the women's shelter. I just need to sort of understand who we are a little bit better so that I can help us to get along better. But I don't need to go there. Yeah. To, <laughs> a bit it, in it, denial. And, well, it wasn't denial. 
while it was in my mind, it's like, that's a battered women's shelter and I don't need to go there. That's how I was looking at it at the time. But that's not even the truth. He's like, I'm not sending you there because, you know, you're a a battered partner. I'm sending you there because they do free counseling. That's why I'm Mm -hmm. saying, I was like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. So then I thought everybody else had the same idea about Nova Vita. So when I went there, I felt like I was wearing like 10 hats and 15 jackets. (laughs) I just like crept in there. And then when I sat in the waiting room, I just held up a magazine till you could just see the top of my forehead. (laughs) I was really embarrassed to be there. Um, but the counselors were so wonderful. When I would get into the room, I would pass people in the hallway and I would just like look at the floor. When I would pass them, I'm like, please don't be someone I know. Please don't be someone I know. Yeah. So yeah, there's so, that's how much shame I was carrying in the beginning. Yeah. Just a heavy load of shame to carry. Yeah. And so I would, did get in those rooms and I did end up speaking. And I was there on and off for years mm-hmm. throughout this whole uh, relationship. They were so helpful for me. I mean, I did get to the point where I could just sail in there just fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just my initial, uh, but I imagine people think about it that way. And that's, yeah. that's not the truth. So that's another thing that I like to sing about how beautiful they are. And one of their sayings is we're more than a bed mm-hmm. or they're not just a bed. And that's true. They have so many services and they're there to help the community. So they were helpful for me. So um, when it came to having the manuscript done and ready to go, because it was so important to me to really revisit the emotions that I was experiencing at that time and make it um, make it really relatable because I was so far removed from that now. Was it relatable? Is it still okay? Are these women going to relate to it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got a hold of Nova Vita and I said, can I send you over the manuscript and can I pay some of the women to read it? And so they, they found three women and I paid them to read the manuscript. And then they sent me such amazing feedback, like amazing feedback. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I was on the right path. I knew that I was on the right track after that. And so I asked them if I could take a little piece of what they wrote. They sent me like half a page each. Oh, yeah. And so I just took a little piece from each of them and I paid them again and asked them if they minded if I put it on the back cover. And so um, that's why you see those three reviews from Survivor. I couldn't use their names because mm-hmm. they are... Um, Mm -hmm. at Nova Vida, but Mm -hmm. um, I was only able to put Survivor, but that's their comments. They allowed me to do that. And so that's my association with Nova Vida. So thankful for them. Yeah, for sure. Um, can you can you tell us where your book is? It's just published. Like, it just got published, right? It's a new baby, yeah. And, and so <laughs> where is it available? So I just generally send everyone to my website because this is so new and it's an ongoing thing for me about where it's popping up and where it's going. So the main thing is I would send people to my website, which is just www.shareobadiah.com. It's just my name. And then on the website, I update it there where it is. I mean, currently it's at Kohl's in Linden Park Mall in Brantford. It's in Indigo, um, uh, Heritage Green on Stone Church in mm-hmm. Hamilton. It's at Aircrafts on Six Nations. It's in White Rhino Gifts in Grimsby. And also you can just, when you go to the website, there's just a, a line there that you can message me directly and I can mail it out to you as well. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. What about Good Minds? Is it at Good Sorry. Minds? Yes. Good oh. Minds. Oh, and that was a huge <laughs> partnership. That's the big one that I waited for. It's like, yeah. I really want to get on Good Minds. <laughs> oh, and Indigo's pretty big. 
Indigo's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. That's just one store. I managed to just get it in one store and they don't normally do that. She said that they do author signings and that you can come in and you can do a little author signing if you're local and stuff. Um, But she said that she was going to make an exception and she was going to put them on her shelf. So she Mm -hmm. did do that. So I was really, really so excited. So is this a genre of, of writing that um, is very popular? Like people write that have experienced the, the um, trauma of domestic violence. Is that a big authorship pool or um, is it's it relatively small? It's very common, I have discovered, that people are just, by nature, writing poetry when it comes to healing. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're just doing that by nature. So it's just a way to get it out. If you're not moving that energy, where is it going? Mm -hmm. So um, it's just a beautiful way to get it out. And Shame to Shine, how did that come about? That was that. Is that a title that you just thought, yep, that's the title, right off the bat? It, it, it is. I did toy with different titles, but that it pretty much is the first one that came to me. I will also say that everything came to me in nature. This was not written at a computer, at a desk. Well, it was logistically, but the, everything that's in this book came to me while I was out walking or in nature or out rollerblading or out riding my bike just <laughs> when I was out all um, and very open to mm-hmm. you know our spirit guides or, or anything that wanted to come through I surrender every day I just live in a very open way and so whatever wanted to come through was coming through and I would just write it in notes in my phone and I also listened to a lot of poetry at that time and through audiobooks so I was listening to what other people are doing. What am I inspired by? What resonates with me? Why did they say that? How would I say that? How did, why did that resonate with me? So there was a lot of that in, in part of the process. And yeah, so Shame to Shine is a title that came to me while I was on the trail. And also the cover is a picture of a rose, which came to me while I was on the trail. And the rose on the cover, so the, at the top of the book, is a, a really um, crumpled up, dried up rose. Mm-hmm. And so that's the shame rose. And then at the bottom, there's a big, bright, beautiful, open red rose. Mm-hmm. And um, I went shopping for that rose myself and put it in... I was very picky about the rose that I was buying. I was in there for a long time. They probably thought I was crazy. It's like, what is she doing all this time for one rose? So then I picked the right one and I took it home and I put it in this three point lighting and this beautiful lighting and took pictures of it. And then I hung it from my, uh, from my window on the curtain rod for a week. And then I put it back in that three point lighting. So the shame rose and the shine rose that you see on the cover is the exact same rose. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, So you can get the book at all of these different places. And have you been doing any book signings, like any events Um, with the book? Or do you want to do a book tour in the future or what? What would you like to do? I definitely, for sure, want to do a book tour. I want to be able to go out and maybe speak for about an hour on learning to live from the inside out. All of the things that I pulled from books, from spirituality, from Buddhism, from yoga, everything that's really sort of helped fill me up. And I'm just so excited to be able to share all of that in a really condensed, nice, beautiful talk, in an hour talk. So I want to be able to take that out and uh, teach people uh, how to live from the inside out versus we're, we're so affected by outside circumstances and that really seems to govern our emotional responses 
but we don't really have to let our emotions bully us around. Mm -hmm. So um, I learned so much about um, taking care of my own emotions, self-soothing myself, not allowing outside circumstances to get to me. It's almost impossible to offend me today. I know that it's just (laughs) from you and of you. It doesn't have anything to do with me. And so those kinds of things are a really beautiful outcome of learning to live from the inside out. So I want to do a book tour and talk about that. And then I will just have the books with me. Mm. But I need to apply for a grant. Mm-hmm. to be able to do oh, that. you need to get hired by people that need to hear your message. Well, yeah, I have to do a lot of outreach. <laughs> I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> but you can all get a hold of you through your website. Yes. Mm-hmm. I work in justice, so um, I think, you know, there are people who work in justice who need to um, read your book because they deal with this issue of domestic violence a lot in mm-hmm. the courts. Yes. And I think they would really benefit, like crown attorneys, judges, defense counsel, they would really benefit from learning, as you said, from the inside out about this issue. Yeah, they look at this issue from a logical perspective. Yeah. And I did have, I did call 911 and the police did come to my house and then they proceeded to arrest me. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't informed about any of this or how it works. And then they just went out mumbling about, oh, just go get some counseling. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> well, yeah, you've just solved the world's problem there. So they're, they're not informed enough about from the inside what yeah. this really means, what it does to a person's psyche yeah, and how you can work to understand that and work with people a little bit better instead of shaming them. Yeah, for sure. And and I know if they read this book from cover to cover, um, they would come out of it having a bit more understanding. Yes. A lot more if they really had an open mind while they were doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole journey from yeah. in the cycle to me finding my way through it to the, I really love the empowered stuff. I really love the writing about smudging and writing about yoga and writing about Buddhism and writing about forgiveness and all that beautiful stuff in the end. It's a bit of a hard read in the beginning because it's so sad. People will probably relate to that, unfortunately. It's so sad. But then hang in there because by the time you get to the end, it's just so beautiful. I've never walked so lightly on Mother Earth as I do today. And that's due to this beautiful disaster. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> so what you're so creative in writing the poetry and doing the illustrations, and you talked about um, doing a film, a documentary. What, how else do you express yourself in your creativity? So one of the things that I want to do with this that also came to me while I was out on the trail is to take the illustrations that I have in this book and then I'm going to put them on canvas. And then I would like to do a domestic violence installation. So it would be one of these drawings and then I would paint it and then there would be a canvas right beside it with maybe one sentence from the book or one sentence that would reference that drawing. And then as you make your way through the installation, you would see the sadder stuff. As you do in the book, you see, if you look at the illustrations in the beginning of the book, there's sadder illustrations. And then as you walk through this installation, by the time you get to the end, it's very empowered, very Mm -hmm. light and very flowery. And that's Um, what I want to do. You mentioned... You mentioned um, going out of your house and grabbing the leash and, and taking your dog with you. How important, uh, how, how important and significant a role did your pet dog play in your healing? Aww, thank you for asking that. So, so big. I, I honestly, I don't feel like I would have survived that. 
Wow. without my dog. That's how imperative. Um, this is why we have emotional support animals because it's recognized socially what these animals do for us emotionally. Yeah. And so I for sure never left her behind. No, if there was some sort of chaos going on, she was my dogger, my daughter, my dogger. Mm-hmm. So I made sure that I took her with me always. And mm-hmm. so she was the best listener ever. <laughs> she was the best listener and she was just, I could squash her. And so it was just to have that, that other little, that other little spirit, that other li- living, breathing thing right there. That's non-judgmental, but pure, unconditional love. Yeah. And that's what she was. And for me, I'm not one of those people that require someone else to like, I need someone else to cry on their shoulder. And some people do. I'm not like that. I need like a, a bedroom and a closed door and by myself. I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to see anyone. But then other people, it's a requirement that they need to be around somebody that they have to. So we're all different. And it's understanding that about each other too. That's our love language. Yeah. So for me, being that introvert and wanting to just go in my room and close the door and not talk to anybody, I could just go in there and maul her to death. <laughs> she was just so sweet. She was the most beautiful thing. Yeah. And my best friend. And so yeah. we were on the trail. There's a picture, there's a drawing um, of me and my dog on the trail mm. that I drew. It's called The Trail. <laughs> that oh, that nice. poem is called The Trail. And so there's a picture of me and my dog. It is on um, page 93. Oh, okay. Um, so is there... Oh, yeah, there you are. Yeah, isn't that cute? There you both are. Um, I can't wait till you do the paintings, and then we can go to the art show. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to get a hold of Glenhurst Gardens, and I'm going to be like, look, I want to do a domestic violence installation. Yeah. And I think sure. that that would be absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I need to get lots of grants for this tour, for this artwork. <laughs> <laughs> You could be like um, Pauline Johnson, and she traveled across the country doing her poetry recitations 19 times. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. Wow. For that time that she that she was walking yeah, the earth. On the, tra- on the train, I guess, she yes. went across the country. That I was surprised when, when I learned it was 19 times. Yeah. Because that's a lot. Definitely but, a lot. But, yeah, you got to get going on your first cross <laughs> country tour so is there anything else you'd like to share this has been a great conversation (laughs) thank you so much yeah um i think that it's just really important that um the what i mentioned earlier about knowing and understanding in that place of hopelessness Mm -hmm. that there is that place of empowerment that we're all born with that that it's all there that we just have to take the time to get sort of curious and sort of shine that part of us up and and sort of it's not we gain confidence by doing those things that feel uncomfortable so once we get that confidence then we get our empowerment and so stepping into that and that journey is so They call it the hero's journey, you know, when you crash and you burn and you go through all of this and then the phoenix rising from the ashes. And so those are the kinds of things that I just get so excited about talking about today. But yeah, for me, bottom line, I want people to know and understand that in that place of hopelessness exists that place of empowerment and and to to not get stuck in that stuckness, which is so easy to do. Mm -hmm. Well... Everyone, go out and get this book as fast as you can. (laughs) And hopefully um, you can see Cher Obadiah on the speaking circle soon. 
Yes, absolutely. I'm going to get out there. Okay. Well, Nyawe for joining us at the Yohat de Negasuna podcast today, and we hope to see you all, listeners, on the next episode. Onikiwahi. Yahweh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, which has been produced by Aboriginal Legal Services and hosted by me, Lisa Venevery. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word Donate, located at the top of the homepage of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. Yeah.